Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. South Fulton, Georgia, Councilman Khalid wants to dispense with the formalities and with all the barriers that are erected between elected officials and the people they serve. The veteran activist, who is in his second year as a young councilman, thinks a lot about how to change our politics and our governance. Born and raised in what is now the municipality of South Fulton, he jumped at the chance to seek a council seat when the new city of almost 100,000 people held its first elections in 2017. But that election was not the beginning of his political journey. Councilman Khalid started organizing when he was barely a teenager, and he has never stopped. He's a leader of the Metro Atlanta chapter of Democratic Socialists of America, a co-founder of the Atlanta chapter of Black Lives Matter. He's been a labor organizer with the Amalgamated Transit Union, and he is an ardent advocate for environmental justice and LGBTQ rights. Councilman Khalid believes that to make the changes that are necessary, there has to be a deep understanding of why things operate the way they do. For him, that requires an examination of social, economic, and racial relations at every level of our politics. It also requires that big challenges be met with a big vision. Councilman Khalid, thank you so much for joining us on Next Left. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a real honor. And I want to begin uh, with your name. You do not capitalize your name, and it's for a reason. Why don't you tell folks about that? It really comes out of the fact that, you know, the first socialist societies in the world are actually African cultures. One of them is the Yoruba culture from which my name comes. Khalid Kamau means eternal quiet warrior. And in traditional Yoruba culture, names are lowercase to emphasize that individuals are not as important as the community. So uh, when I was a when I was a teenager in this very house where we're doing the interview, I sat at a table and told my parents I wanted to take an African name. And they were like, when you turn 18, you can do anything you want. So the day I turned 18, I went down to the county's municipal law library, filled out the paperwork with the help of some helpful uh, clerks, and I took the name. I, I didn't know that I would become a socialist, but I liked, even then, I liked the idea of emphasizing the community over the individual. I was always a community activist since about uh, 12 years old. I have been doing community work, and so it just made sense for it to be lowercase because I hate capitalism. <laughs> that is that is doing the education right there. And you really were active at a very young age. You were organizing protests and organizing activist events uh, at thir- 12, 13? Yes. My, my first one was for back in the day, we used to have Olympic field day. So there was, there was this move to make, you know, field day more educational. So they came up with this whole like Olympic concept and each each homeroom would represent a country. And at my school, which was predominantly African-American, we had no African countries in this Olympic program. So the kids were not learning. We, me being one of the kids, was not learning anything about any African countries. I started a petition to change that. And with the help of a really uh, passionate young 
journalism teacher. I had like a journalism elective. Uh, he helped me write a press release and we contacted the media and the media came out and it was it was like my first taste of, oh, this is how you can change things that you think are unjust. These these are the tools by which that happens. Well, it, that is pretty remarkable, although we've in, in doing these interviews with folks who've been elected to offices around the country, I'm struck by how many people at about the age of 12, 13, maybe 14, make a move, you know, start to, to recognize it. And that's very powerful for young people to, to recognize that they can push the process. I think you've, you've tried to teach that throughout your activism. Yeah, I'm not like a cognitive psychologist, but there's 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 probably something that happens in those those early teen years where you just begin to understand that the rules as they have been explained to you may not be just, uh, may not be evenly applied and are not permanent. Mm -hmm. Now, you've done a, a lot with your life. You're you're from the Atlanta area originally, root, deep rooted in the area. Yes. But you've worked in a lot of jobs coming up. You're a young man, but you've been a, a bus driver. I think you did you work for AT&T at one point? Yes. You've been a community organizer, labor activist. You've done a lot of stuff, but it all seems that in every one of these roles, there was an activist side. There was a sense of mission, a sense of purpose. Tell me about that. Absolutely. One of the ways that I ended up in politics was I love music and I wanted to like focus on music and have a music career. I had also done some pretty intense jobs. I'd gone to law school. I've been an operations manager and a financial analyst. And I thought I just need a job that pays decent money and has like great benefits. My mom they're like, what's well, so I just get a job that has good benefits and that has a pension in case this music thing doesn't work out. <laughs> and I went into, so I was, I was driving paratransit buses for Martyr for the elderly and disabled, the, the most vulnerable population amongst an already vulnerable population of people without access to transit. And Marta came up with this martyr, which is the uh, authority, the bus authority here, came up with this brilliant idea that they could save lots of money by outsourcing jobs because we had a union. One of the things that I learned um, in this process of taking blue collar jobs is that though the pay was less, I had better benefits than I had at many of my white collar jobs. Mm -hmm. And the theme that I saw running through all of them was unions. And so whenever I would get one of these jobs, I would join the union. I realized that it was unions, this collective bargaining that was allowing people to, you know, bargain with management to get these really great benefits. So uh, Marta found a way around the union contract that it had just agreed to by outsourcing the department. And I saw people who were in order to be vested in retirement in MARTA, you had to be there for 10 years, you know, to get the like matching pension investment. I saw people who were there nine years and nine months, like crying and begging management, like, please don't do this. Like, please don't take away my health insurance. Mm. Please don't take away my pension. You know, because in, in addition to losing the pension, we had to like reapply for our jobs and get different benefits. And, and the, the coverage, particularly for people with families, skyrocketed to this unaffordable rate. So I was angry about that. But what really radicalized me was seeing 
people who didn't have the options that I had and that for many of whom this was the best job and the best benefits that they ever had. And they were raising entire families on this. Um, around that same time, I saw this like old white guy from Vermont saying, you know, corporations are getting out of control. And, it, and, and so even though I had decided I wasn't going to do politics anymore, I wasn't going to do activism anymore because it doesn't pay and I don't have time to do music and the things that I love. It re-radicalized me at this magical moment in American history. That is the truth, right? Um, many of us are pulled to our cultural interests and our musical interests. I know I was. And then something happens and it reminds you, wow, you know, there's these other fights and there are these struggles. And you, at a certain point there, decided to identify as a socialist. As you said, you know, the, there's there's history and, and, and other realities there. But there was a certain point where you started to say, hey, yeah, I'm down here in the southeast, in the Atlanta area, and I'm, I'm going to let people know that I'm a democratic socialist. What, what happened there? A, a brilliant man named uh, Eric Robertson. I call him my Clyde Davis or my Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh -huh. he, di he discovered me. I was, I was a union organizer with the Amalgamated Transit Union. I was also a Black Lives Matter organizer. This was around 2015 when we were like taking over freeway ramps and blocking traffic and doing all of that. I knew that the city of South Fulton, so around this time, I, I was doing these things. I was organizing for Bernie, which turned into, I now, now I needed a job, right? And now I needed to um, be paid because I refused to like go back and work for the same company for less. Stacey Abrams was hiring. At the time, she was the Georgia House Democratic Caucus minority leader. And she was doing this brilliant job of flipping seats in the South, which like, very few people have been able to do. So I went to work on a house race down in Milledgeville, Georgia. I actually lost that campaign's first and only campaign that I lost. <laughs> and but that night, the city of South Fulton was created by referendum. I looked and I realized that where I was living at the time, I was living with my mom, helping to take care of her and my aunt, where I was living in the house that I grew up in a council district had been drawn around that, around this place that I grew up in. And then I looked at the demographics and I knew that the city was going to be very black. I did not know that the city would be the blackest city in America, but I knew that it was going to be very black. And I saw the, I went to Black Lives Matter and I said, you know, all of the work that we're doing in Atlanta, which is actually gentrifying and is no longer even in the list of the top 10 blackest cities in America anymore, this new city is being created and a lot of people that we associate with with Atlanta from Grammy Award winners like Two Chains to the Real Housewives star Candy Burris that I went to high school with and even Congressman John Lewis all lived in this city and they would be my constituents if I ran for city council. There's a saying, if you can't change the people, change the people. And so I decided to run for office in this super black city and bring all of this organizing that I have been doing with like Fight for 15 and Black Lives Matter and to bring this level of political education to my hometown. We were a newly incorporated city, so we had been unincorporated Fulton County. Many people don't even understand all of these levels of government from federal to school board to county to municipal. No one here knew what a municipal government would be like because we had never had one. And so I ran, instead of campaigning for myself, I ran a political education campaign about cityhood. 
and my residents, I believe, rewarded me with the job because I had done this job of educating. In that whole process, Eric Robertson, who had been a Teamsters organizer for many years and a Democratic Socialist for many more, he found me and approached me and said, you know, you should think about becoming a member of the DSA. And I was like, what's the DSA? And he was like, you know, it's the group that Bernie came out of. You're a Bernie organizer. I was like, yes, I love Bernie. If Bernie's with it, I'm with it. (laughs) And um, the more that I learned about it, the more I realized that it reflected not only my values as an individual, but right, like these deeply rooted communal values of African culture. And I saw that there is a way that socialism or Afro-socialism could serve my agenda and serve this community. And uh, that's how I, that's how I did it. That's how I became a socialist. So I was really, and, and, and what I say is that this is this is very often the case. If you go to a barbershop mm-hmm. um, and you just have conversations with everyday people, they may not know the word institutional racism, but they know what institutional racism is. And in that same way, I believe that black people may not call themselves socialists, but we are inherently socialists. It's it's routine. I, I am headed to church when we finish this and and. Just last month at church, we raised money for a young lady who was going to Dillard University and didn't have enough money to return because she owed fees from last year. So we got together as a community and paid off her student debt. That's socialism. We'll be back after these messages. Join me on the nation cruise to the Western Caribbean this December 8th through the 15th, sailing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with ports of call in the Bahamas, Jamaica, Grand Cayman, and Mexico. I'll be joined by Ijin Poo, Joan Walsh, Ben Jealous, Zephyr Teachout, and many other progressive thinkers, leaders, and heroes. Together, we'll explore our turbulent political landscape and debate what can be done about challenges facing the United States and the world. We'll do it all amid the natural beauty of the Western Caribbean. This trip will sell out fast. Secure your spot at www.nationcruise.com. I hope to see you on board. I just want to note, uh, you brought up Eric Robertson, who's who's really an epic figure in the Southeast. He's He's been at this for a very, very long time. But there's something important in that, what, your story, because a good organizer is always looking for young folks who've got ideas, because it isn't just that you join something, you bring energy to something. And I don't think there's there's anyone who would doubt that you're running as a democratic socialist really captured a lot of imaginations, not just in South Fulton, but but well beyond South Fulton. I, I, I do believe that. And I wholeheartedly accept that responsibility. I just yesterday was elected chair of the Democratic Socialists of America here in Atlanta. Our chapter is called MATSA, Metro Atlanta Democratic Socialists of America. We are actually the largest socialist organization in the South. And people recruited me to run And I said, I wouldn't run unless we could have a board that reflected Atlanta and and a board of of energetic young people. So I'm like proud to announce that we elected the youngest and most diverse board in the Atlanta Democratic Socialists history. We have an adult entertainer and a college student. 
and an IT director all on the same, you know, all on the same board with me, uh, a city councilman. And one of the one of our chief goals for 2020 is to identify and recruit and train other local people to run at the city and county and state level as democratic socialists. And so let's talk about where you ran. As you mentioned, this is a new city. Yes. And that's exciting. I, I Some years ago, I covered the Scottish independence referendum, and I was struck by how the possibility of creating something new energizes a lot of folks who might not otherwise engage with politics because there is some sense that you can actually establish it, that you can make something. And you have done a really interesting thing on, on seeking to capture that imagination. You've suggested that uh, South Fulton can be a Wakanda. Yes. Which I thought was fascinating. It, Tell us about that. It was just, uh, again, a, a magical confluence of events that the city of South Fulton, that we were sworn in in 2017. And so that in our first year, as we were setting up city departments, the movie Black Panther came out. I adopted the phrase South Fulton forever, which I usually end my speeches and council meetings with. And one of the reasons that we became a city, right, is that there are a couple of things that I want to unpack here. There has been a movement that has been happening, um, particularly in red states, particularly in the South, of municipalization. So usually affluent areas become cities. They, they, they were maybe a, a conglomeration of a few affluent neighborhoods in a particular area. They become cities. In Georgia, there was a constitutional amendment. And this is one of these ALEC-inspired amendments that is working its way around conservative states. Remind folks that ALEC is the American Legislative Exchange Council. It's a national right-wing group uh, funded by the Koch brothers and others that seeks to create model legislation that empowers states, but often disempowers communities. Sorry for the interruption there. No, that's great. That's all. Thank you for that political education. That's <laughs> usually what I'm doing. But um. Yeah. the uh, uh, And so one of their pieces of legislation in Georgia was a preemption law so that when we raised our minimum wage in the city of South Fulton to $15 an hour, we can only do it for government employees. We can't, you know, obligate other businesses in our cities to do it. Another one of those pieces of legislation is around municipalization itself, which the Schaefer Amendment to the Georgia Constitution stated that when a city incorporated all of the money all of the tax dollars generated by that city had to be spent in, in that city. And so what you see happening in these incorporation movements are that wealthy areas are incorporating and becoming cities, and then they pull their money out of the county budget. Mm -hmm. So as these cities incorporated, the parks department, the sometimes the health department, the, the public works department had less money to spend on services. And so these services that were shared by the entire county are now only shared by the unincorporated parts of the county, which in, which in many cases are the poorest parts of the county or the parts of the county that generate the least amount of income. Because the next thing that happens is that once cities incorporate, they begin annexing, you know, all of the commercial areas that generate a lot of revenue, but don't uh, require a lot of services. And so by 2017, 
every square mile of Fulton County, which is also where Atlanta sits, every square mile had been incorporated into one of 14 cities, except for the city of South Fulton. We had the chance to incorporate in 2007, along with some other wealthier areas, wealthier, whiter areas. And I believe that one of the reasons that we didn't incorporate is because we thought in South Fulton, we did not have enough money to become a city, that we didn't have enough money to operate independently. And the second reason is because in this majority African-American city, there is a belief rooted in our post-traumatic slave syndrome that Black people can't lead, that we couldn't be effective leaders, that we couldn't lead ourselves. And th those things caused us to vote no in 2007 when this resolution was first put on the ballot. When we voted no and other cities voted yes, they annexed even more of our land. We had even less money to support our parks or to support our streets. And so by 2017, when we incorporated and became a city, it was really an act of self-determination. There were some of us who believed that we could govern ourselves, and there were some of us that believed we were going to have to do it because it, we just were not going to be able to survive otherwise. It, right now in the county commission, there are seven seats not one of those seven county commissioners lives in the city of South Fulton. But now, as a city, all seven of our mayor and council members live in this community. I actually live in the house that I grew up in, down the street from the elementary school that I used to walk to. So it not only empowered local individuals, but it brought the power of government to the city. City council people are the representatives that are closest to the people that they represent. That is such a powerful and, and good way to talk about it, because I do think that that's one of the reasons why running for local office, a city council seat, a school board seat, a, a county commission seat in a small county is a big deal. But as you've pointed out, and you've been very open about this, a lot of these communities don't pay you very much to hold that office. And so you've been very open about the fact that folks who step up to run for and hold office, especially working class folks, can have a hard time of getting by. But that's one of the reasons that it's so important to run socialists at the local level. There, there are two things. One is having socialists in office and acting socialist policies at the local level allows us to demonstrate these policies with lower stakes, right? So, you know, a, a we can run a hundred thousand dollar program in the in the city for a community land trust or a half a million dollar program in the community land trust. And, and if we can make that work, if we can raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour and it doesn't crash the economy or bankrupt our city, then it's easier to sell the those ideas at the state level and at the federal level. The other reason that it's important is because we are the representatives that are the closest to the people. Bernie Sanders is going to talk to millions of Americans, but he's not going to talk to more people in South Fulton than I get to talk to every day over these four years. And one of the things that I've been talking about is I'm trying to transform this idea. People like to think about politicians as being public servants, right? Which number one is just a, a capitalist imperialist language that like there, that there are people that are servants. But more importantly, what we really are are public accountants. 
we are entrusted mm -hmm. with tracking millions and billions of local tax dollars. And even in the capitalist model, no one pays their accountants $13,000 or $7,000 a year. Everyone knows that you have to pay your accountants well because they are watching your money. And when you don't pay your accountants well, you leave them open to corruption or they burn out, you know? And so you, you aren't able to like keep this institutional knowledge um, going on. So that being able to make that argument at the local level, is that's just another argument that I can make uh, with my neighbors and they see me you know, I took a picture with my food stamp card that went viral and they they find out that they're councilmen because, again, people this is also political education. People don't know how city council works. Um, what they know about city council is what happens in our capital city of Atlanta, where our mayor makes one hundred and eighty five thousand dollars a year and our council people make sixty five thousand dollars a year. And they just assume that council people all over the city make that. But in Georgia's five hundred and thirty five cities the majority of us make less than $20,000 a year. And so when they see their council person on food stamps, they're like, that's not right. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. I see him out here doing, in addition to his council work, I see him, you know, volunteering at schools and volunteering in parks and, and you know, doing all of this community work. He should be able to do this full time. And I want him representing me and watching my tax dollars full time. I want that to be his only job. And so I've gotten like an overwhelmingly positive response from my constituents when I've been transparent about that. And I think that that's that's what happens. Like that is the power of being socialist at the local level. Well, it's also important that when you have a socialist analysis, social democratic analysis, you and yourself understand this isn't my fault that I'm not paid well. This is a system. You start to look at systemic challenges and systemic responses to them. And that I think I've seen in your case, also in Lee Carter up in Virginia, the state representative, Democratic Socialist, who's been very open about the fact that he's driving, I think he's driving Lyft to make some extra money. And, and in, instead of kind of trying to cloak that or keep that you know out of the news, stepping up and saying, no, this is a part of the problem. This is a part of the challenge. And if we're open about this, we begin to address deeper challenges, the possibility of corruption, the possibility of campaign money influencing people, things of that nature. So I think what you're doing there is really important. And I just have to say, that's what that's what makes socialism different from just saying, like, I'm a progressive or I'm a liberal Democrat or whatever. We're starting with this premise that capitalism fails most people everyday people. The system isn't broken. It's fixed. And it's fixed to benefit a minority of people with the labor of the majority of people. And so when you start with that, number one, it gives you a comprehensive political analysis from everything from affordable housing to immigration policies to racial justice. But it also allows you to debunk what I what I call the electability complex, right, which is which is not just a, a, a complex like the prison industrial complex. It's not just a complex of institutions. It's also a psychological complex. The way that a lot of traditional politicians run is they run as these messiah figures and they say, elect me and I will fix your problems. And what socialists are saying is that 
You cannot count on one individual to fix your problems any more than you can drop your kids off at a public school and think that you don't have to worry about how they're being educated. You have to you have to take on the system. When Bernie said it's not me, us, right? It's a, when people ask me, people will, will say to me, "Oh, I need I need my road fixed." I'll say, I need you to come to the council meeting and say to council that you need your road fixed. I mean, I can say it, but I'm one voice of seven. And so a lot of Democratic Socialists elected officials start out as organizers and activists. And so we understand that this is going to be a movement where we have to organize people to be invested and engaged in politics and not just elect someone every four years and go home. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you if you're still thinking about using music as a as a tool to communicate as well. Uh, absolutely. I would love to go back to the studio. Um, I would I would like I I do right now. Uh, we ha- sometimes when we have events, we did a series of uh, screen on the greens in our local park and we had a live band. I did a song with a band, you know, um, I would but I would love to. I would love to do that. I think that it's important that we use every aspect of media. Music is the gateway for a lot of young people into politics and political awareness. You know, so I would like to have an album. I would like to do a reality show. I want to do all of these all, all of these places where young people are. I want to meet them where they are and, and get them engaged in, in local government. So hopefully that will happen. Maybe Clive Davis will call me after this interview. <laughs> well... Uh, if anybody can do it, I think you can, Councilman Khalid. Thank you so much for for joining us for a little bit here on Next Left. It's It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And South Fulton forever. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner-Devoy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. Recording help this week from Jim Michael Burris. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. 